0: Evidence and Answers. Many believe the Shroud of Turin was the shroud that covered the body of Jesus and has the imprint of Jesus on it. Many revere the Shroud as a sacred object, but many believe it to be a fake. Is the Shroud of Turin authentic or a sham? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Joining Pat today is Dr. Gary Habermas, a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Liberty University. He's also an expert on the Shroud of Turin. What is the verdict on the Shroud? Let's join Pat and his guest, Gary Habermas, as they investigate this issue today on this edition of Evidence and Answers.
1: You're listening to Evidence and Answers, the show designed to present evidence for the Christian faith and answers to the challenges Christians face each day. And today we have with us an intriguing topic. It's back in the news once again, the shroud that will not go away, the Shroud of Turin. Is it a forgery? Is it a fake? Or could it be authentic? Well, we have with us one of the foremost scholars in this area, Dr. Gary Habermas, a distinguished research professor at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. He is chairman of the Department of Philosophy and he's written several books in defense of the resurrection, some of the best books on the resurrection. You see a book with his name on it, be sure to get it. So, Dr. Habermas, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Pat. Always great to be on with you. Well, you've studied this issue for many years. Tell us, how did you get interested in the Shroud of Turin?
2: Well, there were two things that happened decades ago, many decades. One in the late 60s and one in the mid-seventies, the latter when I was doing my doctoral dissertation at State University and the first one somebody showed me a book and said hey you need to check this thing out on the shroud and and I was into checking in those days I was just getting into apologetics and I, I was into checking all kinds of things I mean you know a secret book that nobody knows about or Unknown writings by Josephus. I mean, it could be just about anything. And someone handed me this book on the shroud, and I, I went through it, and I was just mesmerized by the amount of evidence. And I thought, how come I've never heard of this thing? And so that was an introduction. As I said, that was a book-length treatment. And then just a few years after that, mid seventies, I was finishing my PhD, and my dissertation was on the resurrection, and my professor was a Jewish professor of history he was very complimentary and he was a great guy to work for but my point is he wasn't a Christian and when I wrote my dissertation of the resurrection he handed it back to me and he said this is really intriguing evidence I mean you know this is pretty thoughtful he said you just in my opinion you left out the major argument for the resurrection and I thought okay I thought this to myself I thought I've got two questions what did I leave out in three hundred and fifty pages? And secondly, why would a Jewish professor of history help give me a better argument to make my argument stronger? I thought found that kind of intriguing. Why would he even study this area? And he said I said, What would that be? And he said, You didn't say anything about the Shroud of Turin. And that's just about the first time I'd heard it brought up after my uh looking at that book several years before. And I thought I thought, wow, this is a scholar who's, you know, willing to talk about this and historian at that. And he's talking about the Shroud. Well, you know, when I get a few spare minutes, I'll try to get involved. And then about a year later, things started breaking in the news about the investigation of the Shroud team that was first going over there to do this major investigation of the Shroud, which took place in 1978 and I looked at the evidence, and it reminded me of the things I read in that book 10 years earlier, and that got me going. I was interested in whether the Shroud was evidence for the resurrection, and I just done my dissertation on the topic of the resurrection, and I got back into it, and always glad I've done it.
1: Well, tell us, what exactly is the Shroud of Turin?
2: Well, it seems to be a burial garment. It's made out of linen. It's a little over 14 feet long. It's a little over three and a half feet wide. And the reason it's so long is because it wrapped a man from start with the toes and go up to the head and then kind of loop it around the head, not tight, but loop it around the head and then come down the back of the body and come back out at the feet. So, you know, if this person is five nine, five ten, 10, you know, the cloth right there alone is going to be pretty close to 12 feet long. And then you have that part going around the head to make that another foot. That's 13. You know, the 14 feet doesn't seem so strange. But what's very interesting is that on this cloth is the double, one front, one back, image of a man who gives all the appearances of being crucified. And he looks very much like the things that were that the gospels say were done to jesus and i say that i mean maybe your listeners aren't used to hearing this but if your you know child is going to do a report on crucifixion at school let's say don't use jesus as your example of what happened because a lot that happened to jesus was not normal for example why do you put a crown of any sort but why do you put a crown on somebody who's believed to be an outlaw, you know, somebody outside of the the law? And now a Christian might say, oh, well, that's easy. They were making fun of him being king of the Jews. Okay, I understand that, but how many people were crucified being made fun of for, you know, being the king of the Jews? And interestingly enough, almost all medieval art, in fact, I heard an art historian one time A medieval art specialist, say, every piece of art he's ever seen, has the nails going through the palms, but the man in the shroud, the nails are going through the wrists, and this has been vindicated in contemporary medicine. Things like that, that are not normal crucifixion procedure. There's a lot of ways to do a death blow to somebody to make sure they don't get down off the cross. We have records of people being threatened with a bow and arrow or having their skull crushed. But the man in the shroud is stabbed in the side, and we're told that blood and water comes out. Well, the Gospels say Jesus was stabbed in the side. Well, so was the man in the shroud. And you've got this blood-water mix flowing from this wound that's about two inches across on the right chest of the man in the shroud. So things like that. The body's not thrown in a common tomb. It's buried individually in a linen, which is very odd for a person who was believed to be a criminal. But again, just what the Gospels say, and, and it's been kept for a, a long time. Probably the question I'm asked the most is, when did they discover it, implying that it was a new object? But the Shroud's been around for at least hundreds and hundreds of years, and no object in history, secular or religious, has received more investigation as an archaeological artifact than this one.
1: Yeah, tell us a little bit about the history of the Shroud. I mean, how did it go from Israel all the way to Italy? Yeah, how did it end up over there?
2: Turin, yeah, northeastern Italy. Well, that assumes, of course, that it was in Israel. So that assumes something about it, you know, wrapping either Jesus or one of the many people who were crucified. I mean, we're told by Josephus that thousands of Jews were crucified when Rome took the city of Jerusalem, a matter of fact, Josephus says that there were so many people crucified that the Romans ran out of wood. That's kind of a gruesome thought. But so what gives us the idea that it could have gone back there? Well, probably the most popular theory was popularized by an Oxford grad about stop and count here about 35 years ago. His name is Wilson, and he theorized that the shroud is the same object that is described actually several times in history as having been moved from the Middle East to Edessa, which is a kingdom today located in Turkey, Asia Minor, and then up to Constantinople, you know, Istanbul, and that it was there for hundreds of years. In fact, it was hermetically sealed in a wall, so it was able to stay in fairly good shape. It was there for uh, possibly as long as a a couple hundred years. And it was in that wall because of the purging of icons, uh, religious icons. It's believed, this theory of Ian Wilson's, is that it, it was discovered by the Knights Templar, the priest, who were trained as soldiers and who fought in the Crusades who brought it back to Western Europe where in its modern history it has not been out of Western Europe and it has been in Turin for uh, almost totally I mean it was moved out say during World War II to keep it protected and so on but its home has basically been the cathedral in Turin so that's a quick rundown of what's the most popular theory there are pollens on the cloth that are found almost exclusively in Palestine, there's dirt on the bottoms of the man's feet that have been written up in a peer-reviewed chemical journal, where this dirt, this clay, if you will, is a species of limestone found largely in Jerusalem. So, you know, there's some good evidence that even though it's modern history is Western Europe, it certainly looks like it has some of the qualifications for having been out of that region.
1: Now, isn't the material also made of material found there in the Middle East?
2: Well, it's consistent. It's hard to say. Now, it's linen, like I said, and there's a little bit of cotton, Just, I mean, just the slightest bit of fibers, but no cotton was grown in Western Europe in those days, I understand. So, I mean, there's a lot of puzzling things like that, and uh, and like I said, the pollen and the dirt on the feet and and things like that it's a three to one linen weave which I guess all you can say is it's kinda consistent with ancient uh, garments unlike some I, I I just don't think you can use those arguments to talk you know time sequence I don't think we can say how old it is based on those things
1: well speaking of the age you know the argument has gone back and forth several times and I think in 1988 was one of the most well-publicized testings on the shroud in laboratories in Oxford, Zurich and Arizona and it seemed to be that it was quite convincing that this shroud was dated about 1260
2: to 1390 AD. That's right. Yeah, the strange thing is I was teaching in Oxford, England at that time and the testing was supposed to be out Pretty soon, and here we are. we went on a little bit of a historical road trip to see some artifacts and you know uh, sites, archaeological sites in England and My student came running up to me, one of my students, and said, "Hey, did you hear this? They said the shroud is fake, and I said, "No way." and I got the article and read it and the it was indeed just what you said. The carbon dating had just come out well today that 's a big bone of contention because it's often said by the scientists that the dating, the 88 dating, is the only major piece of science that is opposed to calling the shroud a, a first century artifact. And so, you know, what do you do with anomalous science? What do you do when science disagrees with with science? So. There's been a lot of responses to the 88 carbon dating, but one of the, I think probably the most authoritative response was done by the chief chemist on the shroud team. He was a Los Alamos PhD in chemistry, and he put the linen cloth, you know, thread that made up the shroud portion under a microscope and compared it to part of the linen that was used in the 88 carbon dating. And he said, look, I don't want to talk about miracles. Actually, he makes fun of of miracles and says, you know, this is just a bunch of baloney and we can't let miracles get into this discussion. He said, I'm just interested in chemistry. But he said, I want to tell you something. For whatever reason, what they dated in the 88 is not the same cloth that we took from the cloth in 78 and did experiments on. He said they're just plain, different cloths. Now, to me, that's kind of decisive, because you can say, I don't like your arguments. But to make a black and white statement that these two objects are chemically or different on a molecular level, that's something you can put under a microscope and check. And he published his article in a peer reviewed scientific chemical journal arguing that the 88-carbon-14 dates were incorrect based on this. He argued, if I remember the argument correctly, I think he came up with the conclusion that what they dated was probably about 60% original cloth and about 40% a medieval weave, kind of an invisible weave when your mom, uh, you know, sews that good pair of pants that you shouldn't have been playing baseball and then you got a little tiny cut in it, you know, and and she's not going to put a patch on it and and declare it old, you know, old play pants. She's going to try to match the color and so on. And he said, he said probably 40% of it was made up of medieval material, and that's why you got the date you did. So Mm -hmm. that's interesting, that comeback. There's a new comeback. Just last week, there's another answer, that the Shroud has been dated a different way, and it has been dated to just before B.C. to A.D., right in that ground, plus or minus, and the ground, the the dating, which is a few hundred years' window, it incorporates the first century. So that's a new dating that the results of that were just published Easter week here, just, you know, last week.
1: Yeah, you mentioned, from what I understand, the shroud was damaged, and so medieval people seeing the holes in the shroud weaved to repair the shroud so you know it would cover up the holes in the shroud and that's how we got this later dating which the 88 sample came from right well tell us there's
2: both there's both Mm -hmm. kinds of patches there's this patch kind you can just look at it and see the kind where mom says yeah this rip in your pants is just too big can't believe this we're gonna have to go out and buy a new pair of pants because you didn't change them like we told you to and I'm going to put an iron-on patch on the knee. Some of the patches look just like those iron-on patches, but there also are invisible weaves that, again, to take that same hole in your pants, and mom tries to sew it up so that nobody can see that there's a rip there and make it as innocuous as possible. So what the guy is saying is the cloth they took this from and divided it up and sent it to the different the three places you mentioned in the U.S., England, and Switzerland, that they weren't careful to avoid getting that that quote-unquote invisible weave, the kind where you know, mom must have done such a good job nobody noticed it kind of thing.
1: Yeah, when I first heard about that test in 88, I thought it was quite definitive and I was pretty much convinced this thing is not authentic. Right, right. But we got a new study that has come out. Tell us about this study and what they have discovered.
2: Well, in Italy, University of Padua, several Italian scientists in the appropriate department uh, working with contemporary, I believe it was something like uh, laser, so on, but they were dealing with that area of science, and they studied this material and said not only is the window a couple hundred years B.C. to A.D., so the window's okay, but this was not, for whatever reason, it was the dating thing that made the news about 10 days ago. It was the dating thing. What was hidden in one or two of the articles I saw was that they had actually been able to tell the kind of process that created the image and that it was a couple of types of radiation. And as the article went on to say, you know, how do you get radiation from a dead body? But the conclusion was, whatever this body form is, this crucified person, it somehow gave off enough radiation to stain this cloth with this mark that you get when you irradiate a piece of linen. This is not the chemical description, but I mean, to the naked eye, it looks like you left an iron a little too long on a, on a white shirt. That's kind of the, the color of the image. Like a light burn mark,
1: and that uh, technology wasn't around back then, was it?
2: Oh, absolutely not. No, not, now you could. There are things you could do. You could drape a piece. I mean, I mean, laser, no. Ra- to irradiate something, no. But you know, you could drape a piece of linen over a hot statue. I mean, the scientists have tried to do a lot of different things to check this out. And they'll say, what about this? What about that? And they've, they've been very energetic. Like I said, there have been more study of this object than any object in history, either secular or religious. And they've checked things like lightning. I mean, you know, lightning can strike cloth in the ancient world. Does any of this do it? And the draping the cloth over a hot statue, or uh, baking it, baking a cloth with oils and things into the cloth. It doesn't work. And and one of the main reasons it doesn't work, I mean, put chemicals on a body that cause vapor to rise from the body, like, you know, what might have been present when a person dies on a cross, you know, sweat and blood, and could you get some kind of vapor off that body? Well, they've checked all these things, and, and the problems are things like, well, you can get a blur, you can get kind of a, wow, whatever that was soaked into the cloth. But you're not gonna say, yeah, that's a clear body image. And on the burning theses, uh, lightning and a hot statue and so on, the image, obviously, in order to make a mark, burns into the cloth. But the shroud image, as strange as it is, this is one of the anomalies, it's called superficiality. The shroud image, if you took a thread, a mere thread, image thread, out, and flipped it over. Not only is the image not on the back, if you could cut it in half, the image isn't halfway through. In fact, let's say that this thread is made up of 200 fibrils that make up this thread. We're talking very minute things here. But the shroud image is on the top fiber. On the top fiber, it doesn't soak through. It's not halfway through. It's not, you know, one third of the way down. It's on the top only. Now, if you try to color it, even with a dry application like powder, certainly with paint or dye or a burn or lightning, it wouldn't be in the top. It wouldn't be in one two hundredth of a thread. But you have to explain that. You have to explain that just shroud image is 3D. There are 3D characteristics. For example, here's this man lying on his back with his hands crossed in front of him he is dead. There's a number of evidences that he's dead. He's in a state of rigor mortis, this post-mortem blood flow, blood and serum, and so on. And you can see his teeth. You can see several teeth. For me, the strangest photograph is the photograph, a close-up of the faiths where you can see teeth. And when I lecture on this, I have a slide, courtesy of a good friend of mine, Alan Wenger, who's a retired from Duke Medical School, a medical doctor, he's got a shroud face that's cut down the middle, so you get got half a face, and he's got a human skull cut down the middle, the photograph, and that's pasted next to it. And you can see the continuity from the shroud face right across to the skull face of the picture. And the teeth that are visible in the shroud, they just continue right across into the skull they look like they're just continuous now you've got to explain what kind of image process is coming through the body that takes the teeth out on the cloth and to me that is one of the all-time mysteries on the Shroud
1: that's fascinating describe for us some more of the man here depicted in the Shroud he seems to have wounds that are consistent with Jesus wounds that he suffered at his crucifixion he's got a crown of thorns He's got nails through his wrists. Do we also see a nail through his ankle? And I understand his back shows signs that he was on a cross as well. Is that correct?
2: Yep. Yes, sir. Yep. And so. Yep. Yeah, I go down that list there that you just gave. There's holes in the. There are five major wounds associated with crucifixion, one in each wrist. The left hand covers the right wrist, so you can only see the hole in the left wrist. But the right wrist, you presume there's a hole there, too, because there's a blood flow that looks exactly the same, like uh, that's going up the right wrist, too. And from the rigor mortis, from the body still having some leftover rigor mortis, it looks like the left foot was crossed over the right foot, and a single nail was placed through both of them, one foot on top of the other. And then the wound I talk, talked about earlier, the side wound. And you, and you said a crown of thorns. Well, I mean, the, there's no crown on the skeleton or on the cloth in this case. But the top of the skull, all the way around, the scalp is pierced throughout with a series of sharp objects. You can't see a crown there, but something has been crushed down on a skull because it's, it's cut all the way through. With which I say, like pinpricks or something like that, he's been torn up. His scalp, there's whipping marks all over his body. Almost every inch of his body, except for his face, his forearms, and his feet, have this these whipping marks, and they're very serious. It looks like he's been beaten with an instrument known as a Roman flagrum, which may have had three. Uh, it's hard to cu- you have to count, but it looks like it's in sets of threes.
0: This concludes part one of Pat's interview with Gary Habermas on the Shroud of Turin. If you missed any part of this interview, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen to this entire interview and enjoy other great interviews and resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by today's show, would you please consider supporting the show and Pat's ministry in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. I hope you'll be with us next week as we continue on with Part 2 of this interview on the Shroud of Turin. Join us again each week for more evidence and answers.